continuing our a series of messages through John, in which we've called this Opposition Rising. In this section of John, there's continued, steadily increasing opposition against uh, Jesus. It's uh, a pleasure to be back with you this morning in the pulpit. I'm excited to look at this passage with you today. It's a really fascinating story. Last week, we saw in John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15, where uh, Jesus performed one of the most famous miracles in the Bible. There was a large crowd of people, and he fed them from just a few loaves and fish. The miracle that we looked at last week was designed with a very specific aim. That aim is directly communicated to us in verse 14. It says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. An obvious question is, why did they respond like that? Why is it that the people who saw this miracle, this sign, responded by saying, this must be the prophet who has come into the world? Well, it's because there was bent-up expectation among the Jews that Jesus was going to send a prophet. This reaches all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses said to the people, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from among the people, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. This was over a thousand years before the feeding of the 5,000 that Moses said, somebody like me, but better is going to come. And this prophet will give you the word of God. The people understood as Jesus was breaking this bread and passing it out that he was the one that Moses had been talking about. Isn't that cool? Under the leadership of the prophet Moses, the crowds were given manna or bread from heaven. Under the leadership of the prophet Jesus, the crowds were given bread that had been divided or multiplied from power from heaven. And next week, we'll see that Jesus himself was the bread that came down to be broken, his body being broken for sin. So there's way more going on in John 6, 1 through 15, than simply a crowd getting food. It's the fulfillment of this message that had been given long ago by Moses, that Jesus is the prophet. Now, at the end of that event, the crowd tries to make Jesus their king, their political king. This won't be on the screens, but if you look at verse 15, it says, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make them king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This crowd's reaction to Jesus was that they wanted to make him their political king. They wanted to harness his power for their own misconceptions of what Jesus had come to do. And that, all of that, brings us to our story for today, John 6, 16 through 20. 
Julia is going to come read for us. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Thanks. What is up with this bizarre story? I mean, of all the miracles in the Bible, this one strikes me as the strangest. If, if there's one that I recognize this isn't actually the case. But if there's one that just seems like a, a magic show, like Jesus just showing off a bit, this one is it. Isn't it weird? You're being way too spiritual. Isn't this weird? Jesus walking on water. For what purpose? Well, I hope over the next 30 minutes that it won't seem near as weird and that the meaning of this story will come to life for you. Jesus in this story is the water walker. And let's consider that by looking first at the setting, so where this took place, by second, looking at the sign in particular, and third, by considering the significance. So the setting, the sign, the significance. And do you see what I did there? Like every other year, I have to convince you that I'm a preacher <laughs> by pulling out the acronym. Setting, sign, and significance. So first, let's consider the setting together. The setting for the story is a, a large lake that's still in Israel. If you were to go there today and go into northern Israel, you would see the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Capernaum. And there's clues in the story that the, the setting is rather ominous. First, in verse 16, it marks that this was taking place at the sea. Verses 17, it says that it grew dark. In verse 18, it talks about the sea becoming rough. This is John's way of saying, if you're watching a movie, then the music would be getting more and more intense as the story moves along. This Sea of Galilee is, is a huge lake. The closest thing to it uh, might be Lake Tahoe, if you've been there. A gigantic lake surrounded by mountains. Now, the difference is these mountains aren't like the mountains at Lake Tahoe, filled with pine trees up high in the mountains. This was a desert and an arid location in which the mountains around were high, and there's vegetation, and cool and beautiful, a place you'd grow crops, but down lower it was warmer. And so as that cool air on the mountains would blow down at times and meet the hot air down below, it would create very intense storms. It's kind of an infamous spot for this. 
And that's what happened to the disciples. They got on their boat and began to cross it as the sea or the lake was calm. But then one of those storms blew in. And it was so intense that if you read the, the parallel accounts of this event in Matthew and Mark, then you know that the, the disciples struggled for hours, rowing and rowing and rowing and rowing against the waves, against the wind, trying to get across, trying to survive. Now that, in a very real sense, ought to remind us of the storms that we face in life. Storms are a frequent analogy in the Bible for the difficulties, the trials, the hardships that we face. Let me show you just one example. In Psalm 69, this will be on the screen behind me, the psalmist says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for God. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me deli be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. The author of Psalm 69 wasn't actually drowning. But the trials he was facing in life could only be described in that way. This story in John 6 is about a literal storm, but the storm motif, if you will, is found all over the Bible. And so we're on very safe ground when I would say to you today, are you in a, a moment in life? where the troubles of life are overwhelming you? Is your boat sinking? Do you feel like the water is up to your neck and you're just barely surviving? Friends, we live in a world full of struggle. And just because you follow Jesus doesn't mean the storms will blow away. They will come upon you and they will come upon me just like they do everybody else. I don't know what your storm might be. Maybe you're overcome by financial strain. Maybe you don't know how you're going to pay that next bill. In fact, you're behind on bills and there seems to be no way to catch up. That, of course, can feel like drowning, can't it? Bill after bill after bill after bill seeming to choke out any hope. Or maybe you're a parent or a child or you have a former spouse who has severed their relationship with you. And so it's not financial struggle that's causing that sense of drowning. It's the absence of a relationship that you hold dear. And so you're, you're drowning not from anxiety over the bills, but out of a sense of grief. There are many painful storms of life. One of the reasons this story is in the Bible is to say to us that 
The disciples know how you feel. They were there. They were there in a literal sense. And notice in verse 17 what John goes out of his way to point out. He says that the darkness came upon them, but Jesus didn't. It's clear that they faced the storm, and at least in their experience for a while, Jesus wasn't there. Have you felt that way? Do you feel that way today? The great British preacher Charles Spurgeon called this the affliction of his absence. Christians, the trials we face may cause us to feel abandoned by God. Now, God in all actuality isn't, isn't gone. He doesn't do that. It's impossible to be separated from Him if you're a Christian. This story demonstrates that Jesus comes for us. But that sense of abandonment may feel very much like reality. But again, the story demonstrates that Jesus always comes for his own. But before we get to that truth and really unpack it together, we need to see another truth. That truth is that Jesus sent them into the storm. Again, this story is in other Gospels. It's in both Matthew and Mark. And in both of those Gospels, it's clear that Jesus sent his disciples off into the sea. You'll find in Matthew 14 and in Mark 6 that the disciples got into the boat because Jesus told them to. Maybe that's a little unsettling to you. But listen to what that's getting at. The obedience of the disciples to Jesus is what led them into this terrible storm. Imagine the roller coaster the disciples had to have been on. They had gone from watching as Jesus took a loaf of bread and broke it and just kept passing it out. Probably for dozens of minutes. Just kept passing it over and over and over and over and over and over. And the disciples weren't mere observers of this miracle. They were the ones who took this bread and passed it out to the people. They were the, the agents through which the people were fed. Imagine what that would have been like as Jesus miraculously caused the food to multiply. And then there was leftovers. And miraculously, there was 12 baskets full of leftovers. Now, is that a coincidence? No, there was a basket for each disciple. There was a basket demonstrating that the one who had brought about the 12 tribes of Israel had a basket left over for each of them. It's rich with meaning. And so they come off of this experience and see the crowd turn from kind of a, a, an amazement and a wonder of who Jesus is into the upheaval 
of the desire to take him as their political king. And so Jesus, rather than getting caught up in that moment of fame, he says to his disciples, you've got to get away from this stuff. And he sends them in the boat. He says, I'll come later. For now, I've got to go pray. So the disciples left this mountaintop miracle to meet a horrific storm. That very often is the experience of God's people. We come down from some amazing experience of God only to find ourselves again. Not only in a circumstance God could have prevented, but in a hardship God has sent us into. This is normal Christianity. Their obedience put them in a situation in which they ended up fighting for their lives. This wasn't the Jesus of their expectations. But friends, there's some things about God you'll only learn by being led by God into circumstances you would not have chosen for yourself. There are lessons that God will teach us as his people that there is no other way to learn. You can't get a degree without going to school. You can't get Christian maturity without going through trial. So this is the setting. Now let's consider together the sign itself. Verses 19 and 20 describe for us what happened. They are in the boat rowing against the wind. The waves are pounding them. The boat is seemingly about to sink. And here comes something no one ever dreamed of. A man walking on top of the water. Jesus walked on the water to the boat. Now, I don't know how to say that in a way that's reflective of the experience. This is weird. This isn't normal. This doesn't happen. No mere mortal can walk on top of water. This is strange. Now think of the supernatural power of God, of Jesus, able to walk on water. Think of that and listen to a couple passages. Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the earth and the heavens. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Hmm. In Job chapter 9, Job gives this incredible speech about God. And one of the things he said is that God alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. And then in the opening words of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, not anything was made that was made. From the very opening words of the Bible to some of the most important speeches about God in the Bible to the very brilliant opening language of John chapter 1, 
God's saying, I, I made everything that there is. And not only did I make it, I sustain it. Not only did I make it and sustain it, I have power over it. Do you see what Jesus is saying by walking on the water? He's saying, you can't make me a mere political king. That's far too low of an ambition. I'm God. I'm God in the flesh. I'm the one who created everything. I'm the one who sustains everything. I'm the one who has power over the storm. I'm the one who, while you're rowing for your life, I'm going to take my evening stroll on top of the storm. He's Lord of creation and he's Lord of the storm. Now, perhaps the disciples, like the crowds, wanted to see Jesus become the king of Israel by force. And perhaps Jesus wanted to make the point explicitly clear. I've come for way more than that. My kingdom is not of this world. My, my kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. And so Jesus sent them into the storm. Friend, Jesus wants you to know that he is Lord, that he's king, that he's God, that he alone can be trusted in every circumstance. That as we sung together just a few minutes ago, it is well with my soul. Which, by the way, you, do you know the circumstances behind that song? A man's family went on a boat, and that boat met a storm, and it sunk, and all of his kids died. Only his wife survived. And that man's response was to write that song, It is well with my soul. Jesus will send us into trials so that we will know he's God because we can't learn it any other way. Now, you and I don't travel by boat, at least not very often. We pay ridiculous amounts of money to get stuck on a boat in these things people call cruises, which I will never understand. But we live in a desert and it's 2,000 years later. What possibly could this setting or this sign say to you today? What, what significance could it have tomorrow morning, on Monday morning, when the alarm clock rings and you've got to get up for another week? Well, let's consider the significance. Look at verse 19. When they had rowed about three or four miles. They saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Like, no, duh. Why, why does it need to say that? Isn't that rather obvious? They were afraid. But he said to them, it is I. Don't be afraid. Let's look at what Jesus said closely. First, the second part and don't be afraid. The most common, the most frequent command in the entire Bible is stop being afraid. Fear is the stuff of everyday life. Fear is what drives many of us to do the most ridiculous things we do. 
Fear is what compels us often into bad decision-making. Fear seems to be everywhere. And if you're living in fear, what you probably need is not a change in circumstances, but a reorientation away from fixing your eyes on the trial toward the awe of the one who's Lord over that trial. Friends, hear Jesus say today, don't be afraid. Not in an an angry, punitive, shaking his finger at you in disappointment kind of way. But in a loving, gentle, comforting, peace-giving, don't be afraid. How do we know he said it like that? Well, because of the first half. It is I. It is I. Give me about 90 seconds of some technical things to help you get what he's saying. The Greek text, so Matthew through Revelation were written in the common language of the day. The common language of today is English, but in the first century it was Greek. And in the common language of the day, Jesus said, ego emi. He said, I am. I am. Do not be afraid. The solution to their fear was to know who Jesus is. That's always the solution to every fear. If you know your Bible well, that might sound familiar. You see, there was another guy who encountered God in a unique, visible, demonstrative, that we know of this never happened again kind of way. And God said the same thing to him. I am. But this time it wasn't in Greek. It was in Hebrew. Yahweh. I am. Am. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, this story is in Exodus chapter 3, the second book in the Bible. God showed up. He manifested himself to a guy named Moses in a burning bush. Again, a, a rather strange way for God to reveal himself, but nonetheless, he did. And Moses, in his fear, said, God, I can't do what you're asking me to do. I don't even know who you are. I don't even know your name. God's response to him was, I am. Closer than the air you breathe. The very essence of reality. The one sustaining all things. The one causing your heart to beat again. The one who is Lord over all. I am. I am. What's up with this crazy story of Jesus walking on water? The point couldn't be any clearer. The water walker of John chapter 6 is... The I am 
of Exodus chapter 3. Sometimes I wish I preached to a black church. You ought to be hollering. This is incredible. The God of the Old Testament, the, the one who promised that he would one day set everything right, is Jesus. Now, the same picture is in Psalm 65. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. The hope of the ends of the earth and the farthest seas, the one who by strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring seas, the roaring of the waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. Who is that? That's Jesus. Jesus isn't some mere political king over one little nation. He is God who came to save people from all nations, as Ted prayed. The, the disciples struggled against this storm for hours, and in the middle of the storm, Jesus showed up. He showed up with a message, I am. The presence of Jesus quiets the torrent of the loudest of storms. Friend, whatever storm you're facing today or you faced in the past and haven't resolved, you've just stuffed it, or whatever storm you'll face in the future, what you most need is not the circumstances to change. What you most need is to know the I am. The most terrible storm you and I will ever face is the storm of the wrath of God against us for our sin. That is the storm that will never end. That is the storm that will go on forever. All of us have rebelled against God, rejecting His good authority over us. He's the creator. We're the created. And so when we resist Him and do our own thing, we're stiff-arming the one to whom we owe everything. The right response of God to that is justice, is wrath, is consequence. And yet Jesus came and he walked on that storm too. Jesus stretched out his arms and offered himself as the perfect sacrifice in order to still the storm of the wrath of God. So that Christian, you no longer ever have to fear that storm. You see, in Christ, there's only the still waters of the love of God for you forever. Thank you. Christian, a, a fear of being in the presence of God is both natural and totally unwarranted. These disciples had no need to say or to feel 
fear because it, it was the I am. You have no need to fear being in God's presence because Jesus has justified you. He has made you right with God. You are clothed with the perfection of Jesus regardless of what you did yesterday. You are clothed with Christ. What the water walker, what the water walking sign points to is that the water walker is the I am. Perhaps you've noticed if you've read your Bible closely that there's these places where the name for God, Lord, is got a, a big L and then a, a still big but slightly smaller O-R-D. Have you ever noticed this? Lord. It's in all caps. This is a way in which the translators of the Bible have expressed the proper name of God, Yahweh, the God referenced in Exodus 3. This, here's one example, Psalm 107. And watch the striking parallel between these verses and John chapter 6. When they cried to Yahweh, to the Lord, to I am, to Jesus, in their trouble, he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still. The waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet. He brought them to their desired haven. The one they prayed to in Psalm 107 is the one that got into the boat in John 6. Friends, the deeper you look into the Bible, the more you find Jesus on every page. Now look quickly at the response of the disciples in verse 21. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. In other words, when the disciples learned it was Jesus, when they saw that he was the I am, the only appropriate response was to receive him with joy. Why would one ever continue to do this to God when they see who he really is? That's what the Gospel of John is all about, inviting people to receive Jesus, urging people to believe and thereby be given life with God. Church, the disciples received Jesus. And we individually, as Christians, have received Jesus. He's got into the boat of our lives, if you will. And thereby, he has quieted the storm of the wrath of God. But that posture of receiving Jesus, of believing in him, isn't a one-time thing. It's the steps we take every day. It's the normal course of life. So I'd ask you today, brothers and sisters, are you continuing in that posture of believing in Jesus, of trusting Him, 
of not looking so much at the storms around you, but of recognizing the presence of the I am with you. If not, you can turn from sin and turn back to him today. And non-believer who may be here today, what John wrote about long ago, while it is something you and I will likely never see, as far as we know, this never happened again. The Jesus who walked on water to reveal that he's God is the same Jesus who speaks through the word of God today to invite you to believe in him, to receive him. If you're not a Christian, Christ is not with you. If you're not a Christian, God is not for you. The storm of his discipline is still raging. And yet in Christ, that all can change. If you believe who Jesus is and what he did, and if you'll turn from sin and trust in Jesus, then in an instant, just like as Jesus took that step into the boat and the storm ceased, that by way of analogy will speak to what God will do on your behalf. He will quiet the storm of the separation you now know from God and give you the joy of peace with Him. It would be our privilege as a church if you as a non-Christian would say to somebody sitting around you in the break, we have 30 minutes free coming up. If you'd say to somebody or come up here to me at the front, I need to know Jesus. Would you help me? We'd love to tell you more. The water walker is the I am. Let's pray.